Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know medical care requires informed consent, but laws require informed consent. Politics, entrepreneurship, how you engage with your diet, health, exercise, even relationships. These all require a place of being informed. And I am so sick of being called a conspiracy theorist for using my brain and being informed. So that's where this podcast came to life. This is Informed Consent. I'm your host, Brooke Brewer. Let's start talking. How many times has polio been brought up when you have conversations about vaccinations? Polio is by far the go-to reasoning of why we need to be vaccinating our children. Well, the vaccine eradicated polio. Well, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the polio vaccine. We are told to believe that polio is terribly deadly, right? Visualize the iron lungs. This picture has been continuously circulated as propaganda to terrify parents for over 40 years. I want to go back to the three questions that I urge every single individual to ask when it comes to vaccines that we talked about in our last week's episode. Number one, is this shot likely to work? Number two, should the disease be contracted? How likely is it to be dangerous or fatal? And number three, what are the risks of the shot and what are the side effects? On our second installation of our vaccine conversation series, I I want to get right into the nitty gritty of polio because Anyone who listens to any conversations of vaccines that has the mindset of polio being eradicated by vaccines will completely shut their minds off because they think that that is the reason why we are saved as vaccines. And I truly believe if you can open your mind and if you can really learn about polio and the vaccine and what really happened, that will really make you a little bit more receptive to hearing more information about vaccines. Again, most people stay so closed-minded. It doesn't matter what you tell them. It doesn't matter what ingredients you tell are in there. It doesn't matter what you say. They are told to believe, we are told to believe, that polio vaccine eradicated polio. And I want to just share some information with you guys on this episode about polio, about the vaccine, about the history, about DDT, about so much that all revolves around polio. And then after this episode, I want you to take that intuition that you have, that God gave you, and try to connect the dots here. Really ask yourself at the end of this episode, was polio really eradicated by the vaccine? Or was it something else? Before we get into it, I want to go back to our sponsors. Let's talk about deodorant. One in eight women are diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. Why is that? Only 5% of cancer is caused by genetics or your body. The rest of it is by your environment, what you put on your body, in your home. One of the biggest links to breast cancer is your deodorant. Deodorant is filled with harmful chemicals like aluminum, parabens, and other toxic ingredients that actually increase the chances of diseases. Also, deodorants, typically your generic drugstore deodorants contain harmful, toxic 
fragrances that don't actually make your BO go away. They mask it while also seeping into your skin, right into your lymph nodes that are very, very, very close to your breast. And this is how we can really harm our health. I'm so honored to be sponsored by Primally Pure, a all natural toxic company that carries my absolute favorite all natural deodorant. Their deodorant is crafted with natural ingredients like fair trade coconut oil, arrowroot powder, baking soda free of aluminum, and Carolyn clay. It's also made with essential oils that support the health of your hormones, nervous system, immunity, and mindset. Primally Pure is absolutely my all-time favorite all-natural deodorant I have ever found, and I would love for you guys to try it. My personal favorite is the charcoal. I also really like their blue tansy deodorant. So you can go to their website at primallypure.com. That's P-R-I-M-A-L-L-Y, pure, P-U-R-E.com. And anything that you order, if you use Brooke B, Brooke B at checkout to save you 10% off. Let's also talk about your gut health. A healthy gut is an indicator of a good overall health, and you've probably heard of prebiotics and probiotics. These are essential for your microbiome in your body to help with gastrointestinal health, supporting the gut barrier integrity, optimizing micronutrient synthesis, promoting microbiome diversity. It also helps to support immune function, brain and cognitive health, and overall supports your well-being and energy. Prebiotics and probiotics are incredible, but so are postbiotics, which many people aren't familiar with. I have found the most incredible three-in-one microbiome matrix. This is called the Axis Trebiotic. It's a cutting-edge science backed by many, many, many clinical studies to help with three key factors. The GOS prebiotic helps beneficial gut bacteria populate faster and with greater intensity. The Neuroflora probiotic complex provides three scientifically selected strains of acid-resistant bacteria shown to support microbiome diversity, immune health, and brain and cognitive health. And EPCOR GI Plus, a whole food fermentate, supports a healthy gut lining with optimal micronutrient synthesis and overall well-being. If that sounded like a foreign language to you, Axis Trebiotic is a patented product backed by science that use an innovative beadlet delivery system. So there's no pills that you have to swallow, but you still get 10 billion cells per serving. It supports brain health, immune function, your microbiome, overall well-being, and energy. To try this incredible scientifically made trebiotic, you can simply go to modere.com. That's spelled M-O-D-E-R-E.com. Search for the product trebiotic, and you can use referral code 484-2132 to save you $10 off your first order. Again, that's code 484-2132. Use that at checkout, and it'll take $10 off your first order. To fully understand where polio went, you must first understand what polio really was. So the term poliomyelitis is a description of spinal pathology. The meaning of the word comes from Greek polios, gray, mulos, marrow, itis, inflammation, and denotes inflammation of the gray matter of the spinal cord. The result of this inflammation, whether chemical or viral, is reflected by certain characteristic muscular symptoms that have been conditioned into the minds of several generations to look 
like the most visible aspects of polio that we are conditioned to believe, and that's brace limbs, iron lungs, deformities of the hips and legs, clubbed feet, and scoliosis. Polio is a virus that actually can get into your intestines. I want to read some statistics because I feel like it's important. Polio is spread through the fecal oral routine. So it actually is spread through the mouth. So essentially, it's a virus that gets into your mouth and then can make its way into your intestines. Some very important statistics to note of with poliomyelitis, and that is 72% of polio cases are actually asymptomatic. You will absolutely never know you have it. In fact, this is what begins to create natural immunity in our bodies. About 24% will experience minor illnesses, symptoms of the common cold, and to some, they might not even recognize they have any symptoms at all. One in 5% will experience temporary paralysis that resolves itself in a couple of weeks, and less than 1% of cases end in permanent paralysis. So really in conclusion of these statistics, it's a disease that not many people should have to worry about because the odds of having symptoms are so low and the odds of even being paralyzed are that much lower. And then the odds of actually staying paralyzed are even lower. For 99% of people who catch polio, it's mild and harmful. But we sit there and are told to believe it's this horrific disease. And again, I'm not saying that people didn't die from this. People died from this left and right. Yes. People were paralyzed. Yes. But zoom out the lenses. A very, very low statistical rate of deaths happened from this disease. A very, very low statistical rate of people were paralyzed from this disease. The average person didn't even know they had the disease. And very, very, very uncommonly, Did they have very mild symptoms, almost like a stomach flu or a common cold of contracting this disease and not only contracting it, but having those paralysis symptoms in that 1%. Under healthy environmental and dietary conditions, certain populations would actually have up to three different types of the virus as antibodies in their body. And they actually did not develop paralysis or even have significant symptoms of this infection. When people talk about polio now versus then, first off, let me backtrack. Polio has been eradicated in the United States. There's actually the last wild case of polio was just some 40 years ago. Um, I believe it was 1979, I believe was the last recorded wild case of polio in the United States. So polio has been eradicated in the United States. What many people also fail to really consider when thinking of even viruses from way back when to now, I I want you guys to think about the environmental changes that we have now versus then. Back then, they didn't have clean water. They didn't have proper sewage treatment They didn't even really have much fresh air that existed without any sanitary infrastructure. They were deprived of the cleanliness of water itself. There wasn't much hand-washing stations. Places weren't nearly as clean. And I really want you to take into consideration how polio spreads. And again, as we shared, it's, it's through fecal matter. 
basically from the feces to the mouth. And so you could argue that in most of all cases of polio, that spread is through fecal matter. And probably because these bathrooms weren't as sanitized, if you're in public restrooms, they didn't have toilet paper. They didn't have clean washing stations. So we, we spend so much time talking about a virus that had such impacts on the world and on our people, which yes, it did, but it was 50 some years ago when our environment was so different. Our cleanliness abilities were so different. I think this is very important to take into consideration when we think about the chances of us getting polio now that has, remind you, been eradicated for well over 40 years. So again, going back to the history of polio, I think it's also very important to note that before the vaccine in specific, there was actually many distinct diseases that were grouped under the umbrella of polio. In fact, actually, after the vaccine was developed and widely accepted, there was an effort to actually distinguish polio virus from other types of paralytic diseases. We're going to actually go into this in a little bit more detail shortly, but things that could have been documented as polio prior to 1958 are things like transverse myelitis, Golan Bear syndrome, lead poisoning, hand, foot, and mouth disease, undiagnosed conjugal syphilis, enteroviruses such as Coxsackie and ECHO. The face of polio has actually changed quite a bit. And I, I find this so intriguing to really think about, especially thinking about what we're going through right now during this pandemic. I don't think people fully realize how often big pharma and these medical institutions and whether it be our government or the WHO or the CDC decide that they're going to change. They're just going to decide they're going to change terms or they're going to decide they're going to change things up. They're just going to decide that everything is going to be called polio up into a certain time. And then all of a sudden, it's that much more difficult to actually diagnose people with polio. Does that sound familiar at all? How they can just rearrange the terms and rearrange the ideas and then seeing the occurrence of these diseases go down. It's very interesting. It almost sounds like what's happening right now in not accepting PCR tests and, and understand that PCR tests are invalid or all of a sudden that the truth comes out that PCR tests can actually test for the flu. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden things, the numbers go down. Polio, 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 vaccine saved you, vaccine saved you, vaccine saved you. Do you notice any trends of what we're living in right now? I really want you to sit on that thought. As we get into more, more conversations of, of the history of polio, as we discussed in our last week episode, Jonas Salk in 1955 saved, saved the world with his invention of the polio vaccination. And I find it very interesting that prior to 1954, the practice among doctors was to diagnose all patients who experience even short-term paralysis within 24 hours with polio. 
In fact, Dr. Bernard Greenberg, head of the Department of the Biostatistics of the University of North Carolina School of Public Health and chairman and committee on evaluation and standards of the American Public Health, Health Association stated in 1960 that prior to 1954, any physician who reported paralytic poliomyelitis was doing his patient a service by way of subsidizing the cost of hospitalization and was being community-minded in reporting a, a communicable disease. The criterion of diagnosis at that time in most health departments followed the World Health Organization definition, spinal paralytic poliomyelitis, signs and symptoms of non-paralytic poliomyelitis with the addition of partial or complete paralysis of one or more muscle groups, detected on two examinations at least 24 hours apart. Note that two examinations are at least 24 hours apart, was all that was required. Laboratory confirmation and presence of residual longer than 24 hours was not required. In 1955, the year that the Salk vaccine was released, the diagnostic criteria became much more strict. So essentially, prior to this vaccine, it was much, much, much more common and easier by, by criteria given to these doctors to diagnose their patients with paralytic poliomyelitis. After the vaccine, they were told that if there's no residual paralysis, 60 days after the onset, the disease was not considered to be paralytic polio. Therefore, by simple changes in diagnostic criteria, the number of paralytic cases was predetermined to decrease in 1955 to 1957, whether or not any vaccine was used. Any logical human would put that together. Whether or not a vaccine came in because of these much more stricter guidelines, essentially also having to wait 60 days, which if, we, if you understood what we talked about at the beginning of this episode of how common it was for people to actually recover, 50% of people recovered within a few weeks of this, they would definitely not even, even if they had paralytic poliomyelitis, they wouldn't be considering this because if they did not have paralysis after 60 days, they were not considered in this group. So not only did these rules and guidelines and diagnostic criteria change, but the time frame changed almost to something that's so unreasonable. It's almost like they are only trying to get that 0.5% of people who have that severe paralytic poliomyelitis. After 1958, many diseases that are actually common today hid behind the name. So prior to 1958, like I had kind of shared before, there was a big umbrella of polio, of the naming of polio, of basically everything was polio. Well, after 1958, Remember, the vaccine was introduced in 1955. All of a sudden, polio cases were not being all named polio because people were learning that there was many other cases. And actually, there's just many polio-like viruses that actually come in the enterovirus family. Polio is in this family, but there's many other viruses that come in this family. And what they were doing before was naming basically everything in this family of viruses, polio, whereas after 1958, including even now today, 
a lot of these diseases and viruses have different names because they're different viruses. They might be characteristically similar to polio, but they are not polio. Diseases, again, like transverse myelitis, viral or aseptic meningitis, Guillain-Barron syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, spinal meningitis, post-polio syndrome, acute flaccid paralysis, traumatic neuritis, Ray syndrome, all of these now have their own names after 1956. Interesting. A couple other very interesting things that need to be brought up when we talk about the history of polio is that we didn't actually have any sort of technology to identify viruses when polio was here. Yes, they thought that they discovered polio as a subject that's causing paralysis, but there actually was no specific technology to see this as a fact. So they also were doing a lot of just assuming by studies and traits and characteristics and symptoms And I am not saying they were not wrong, but again, this is just something that I think you need to take into consideration when really thinking about the numbers of polio. The last thing I want to talk about with the history of polio before we get into the vaccination is something that I feel is extremely important we talk about, and that is DDT. That is a pesticide. It is a spray that is meant to kill pesticides. It's an environmental chemical that people literally praised during the time of polio. A lot of people during the time of polio believed that flies in particular were believed to spread polio outdoors and in the home. So in the response to this, many fearful parents, schools, Teachers, the government even spray DDT on all their windows and sprinkle it even on their sandwiches in their children's lunchbox. DDT in water was used to rinse clothes, bedding, and mattresses. It was thought to be safe and effective, even safe enough to spray at public beaches and directly onto children in an effort to halt the spread of polio. I'm sure you have seen photos of the mass spraying of this dust cloud during the time of polio. That is DDT. By the 1960s, there was convincing evidence that polio virus could live quite happily in pesticide-treated cells. And moreover, that the pesticides led to an increased susceptibility of viral infection. DDT was found eventually to enhance the release and intracellular multiplication of polio virus. Thus, it did very much so link to creating this crazy monster of a polio virus. Very unfortunately, this information was not published in the medical literature until a full decade after the polio vaccine was an accepted solution to the poliomyelitis. Thankfully, DDT was actually phased out of use in the United States and Canada beginning in the 1960s because of the dangers that were being posed of DDT and how many people learned that not only was it increasing the susceptibility of viral invasion of polio, but it also had extremely toxic chemicals that were having other long lasting effects on the human body. I also want 
to take note that this was being phased out. DDT was being phased out of the United States and Canada beginning in the 1960s, which was actually right around the time that polio was disappearing. Hmm. Interesting. After much studies, in fact, exposure to DDT alone induced symptoms that were very, very indistinguishable from poliomyelitis. Acute gastroenteritis occurs with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and diarrhea, usually associated with extreme tenesmus, the feeling of having to pass stool with the inability to do so. A head cold, cough, and persistent sore throat are common, followed by a persistent or recurrent feeling of constriction or a lump in the throat. Occasionally, the sensation of constriction extends substernally and to the back and may be associated with severe pain under the arm. Pain in the joints, generalized muscle weakness, apprehension, and exhausting fear are usual. Exhausting fatigue are usual. The latter are often so severe in the acute stage as to be described to some patients as paralysis. Interesting. Sounds like DDT poisoning sounds very similar to the diagnosis of poliomyelitis. I'm going to link a graph in the show notes that I really feel it's very important for everybody to look at. It's a line graph basically showing the polio case incidence and the persistent pesticide spray usage pounds per million of this DDT chemical between the 1940s and 1970s. I will essentially explain it, what I'm looking at, but I urge you guys to look at this graph. I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, I guess you could say six spikes in polio. We have a spike at what looks like around 19, let's say that's 47. We have a spike that what looks like Eh, 1949, a spike that looks like 1953, and a spike that looks like, let's say, 1959. And following each spike is a pretty steep decline. That's with polio. In the DDT spraying part per million, these, these graphs almost line up perfectly. We have a spike just about in 1946. We have a spike just about in 1951, right before the biggest spike of actually polio cases. We have another spike in 1954 and another little spike in about 1957. Again, these lines almost look eerie similar. And I want you to take everything that we discussed about the umbrella of polio and how they were just calling everything polio that even resembled polio to then the studies that DDT poisoning has very similar symptoms to polio to also the idea that polio started really decreasing around the time when DDT was banned in the United States and Canada. And then also really taking into, into consideration the guidelines that doctors had after 1958 on how they diagnosed their paralytic polio. I think these are all very, very, very important things that we talk about when knowing the history of diseases. Because yes, I think there is one thing to know that what ingredients are in our vaccines. 
and the schedule and what we're giving our children. But I think if we can fully actually understand the disease and the history of that disease, we can come to a little bit better conclusions of if these vaccines are worth it. Again, going back to those first questions, those three questions that you should ask. Is the shot likely to work? Should the disease be contracted? How likely is it to be dangerous or fatal? What are the risks of the shot and what are the side effects? Without asking yourself any of the questions about the vaccine, I just want to go back to question number two. Should the disease be contracted? How likely is it to be dangerous or fatal? First off, this has been eradicated for over 40 some years. Yes, there are people in the news and the media who try to sit there and say that polio is back. There has never been a proven case of polio in the United States in over 40 years. Again, polio is part of the anterior family of viruses. And although there might be viruses that are very similar to polio, that does not mean it is polio and that does not mean polio is back. And let's just say polio does come back. Remember, the percentage of people who actually show symptoms, 72% don't. 24% again show minor illnesses to the point of a common cold, maybe even a light flu. 1% to 5% experience temporary paralysis and less than 1% of those cases end in permanent paralysis. So your odds of contracting the disease are so low, I mean, statistically zero, but your odds of then even showing symptoms is very statistically low. And let's take into account how it is spread through fecal matter. If polio really is polio and not DDT poisoning, let's just ignore DDT right now. It's through the spread of fecal matter. Um... Unless you let your child play around in a pile of poop at school with their friends, I think you might be pretty good. Teach your kids how to wash their hands. Teach your kids not to touch their face. Those things, sanitary practices. We have much cleaner water. We have much, much healthier air, air quality in our homes. So taking these into considerations and then ask yourself again, How likely is this to be dangerous if my child does contract polio? So going to the next two questions is about the vaccine. So I want to take some time and actually talk about the polio vaccine. So the polio vaccine, there actually has been two different forms of the polio vaccine. We have the OPV and the IPV. So the OPV is the oral polio vaccine. And actually, this is a live virus that actually goes into the mouth and it actually can spread. This is a live virus. And when it is put into the mouth, it can stay in your intestines. And this, because it's a live virus, has been known to actually shed. There have been many cases of people who get the OPV who have been known to spread it to other people. The OPV actually raised many controversies and 
was taken off the schedule. The IPV was added to the schedule. So now we are actually getting an injected version of the polio virus versus the oral, which was live. The injected version is meant to be inactive polio. There are still some countries that get the oral polio vaccine that is still showing that it is actually spread more often when you get the oral versus the injected. The the live oral vaccine was actually paralyzing kids because it was so inact so because it was active and it was living in the intestines and some of these young children couldn't actually fight off the virus so they were actually and not essentially inoculating themselves with these viruses and giving themselves the viruses to the point where they were getting severe cases. So we don't have the oral polio that that kind of has come and gone, but I want to spend the time talking about the inactivated polio vaccine, the IPV, but what is commonly, most commonly seen today, what is the most popular vaccine But before even getting into that, I want to talk about the Cutter incident. I hinted this incident on my last week's series, my episode one of our vaccine conversation. And I think this is a very important thing that needs to be discussed. There was an epidemic of the Salk polio vaccine. He's praised as the most wonderful hero because he brought forth the polio vaccine But what so many people fail to discuss is the disaster of the Cutter incident. What is the Cutter incident exactly? Funny you may ask. (laughs) From the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, in April 1955, more than 200,000 children in five Western and the Midwestern USA states received a polio vaccine in which the process of inactivating the live virus proved to be defective. Within days, there were reports of paralysis, with, and within a month, the mass vaccination program against polio had to be abandoned. Investigations revealed that the vaccine manufactured by the California-based firm of the Cutter Laboratories had caused 40,000 cases of polio, leaving 200 children with varying degrees of paralysis and killing 10. So... There's a lot that we can take from the Cutter incident. The first is that this created 40,000 cases of polio in 1955. Pretty crazy, huh? Also showed that so many children were getting paralysis from the vaccine, from the polio. But yet you never hear about this. With risk, there must be informed consent. Does this not bring you back and make you have an eerie feeling of what we're living in right now? So let's let's go back to the details of the IPV. So this vaccine is given at your two-month vaccination schedule. It's given at your four months, and you actually it, it's typically given at your six month, but you actually can choose. You could choose to either give it at your six months or actually you can wait up to your 18 month, I believe. So you actually can delay your third polio vaccine if you would like to. So this vaccine is made actually with, with monkey kidney cells and, and they these monkey kidney cells grow polio in the cells in a lab and nourish them with human blood and cow blood. 
this blood essentially helps to give nutrients to the to keep the kidney cells alive to help grow the viruses. Then after this process, they add formaldehyde and 2-phenyl ethanol to neutralize the virus and inactivate it to make sure it's inactivated so we don't have another cutter incident. And then they add three different antibiotics to sterilize it. So the main ingredients of this IPV is modified eagle medium, bovine calf serum, Vero monkey kidney cells, formaldehyde, M199, neomycin, formaldehyde, that phenylaxyl ethanol, neomycin, and then the three antibiotics, neomycin, polymycotin B, and steptomycin. <laughs> however you say those. Let's break down some of these ingredients. So the calf bovine serum, this is the cow blood that is used to help give nutrition, help to give nutrients to the kidney cells to keep them alive so they can grow the polio virus. After slaughter and bleeding of the cow, the mother's uterus containing the calf fetus The calf fetus is removed during the process of removing the mother's internal organs and transferred to the blood collection room. A needle is then inserted between the fetus's ribs directly into its heart and the blood is vacuumed into a sterile collection bag. This process is aimed at minimizing the risk of contamination of the serum with microorganisms from the fetus and its environment. Only fetuses over the age of three months are used, otherwise the heart is considered considered too small to puncture. Once collected, the blood is allowed to clot at room temperature and the serum separated through a process known as refrigerated centrifugation. Pretty gross. Then we have the phenylexethanol, however you say that. Um, I'm probably butchering all these and I don't care. (laughs) According to the National Institute of Health, this is toxic by all routines, whether you inhale it, ingest it, or dermal contact. It's very irritating to the eyes, skin, and respiratory tract and may cause effects on the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. Effects from exposure may include eye irritation, headache, tremors, and central nervous system depression. We also have formaldehyde. Formaldehyde is a human carcinogen and severely irritating to the eyes, skin, and the respiratory tract. The National Institute of Health states that there is sufficient evidence in humans for the carcinogenity of formaldehyde. Formaldehyde causes leukemia, which is cancer of the blood. There's also a positive association that has been observed between the exposure to formaldehyde and synonasal cancer. So why a known carcinogen is included in our vaccine is mind-blowing to me, but Moving forward to our antibiotics, neomycin is an antibiotic with a black box warning. If you don't know what a black box warning, that means that death is listed on the possible side effects. Possible reactions to neomycin are very long. There's hearing problems, ringing in the ears, feeling nauseous, spinning sensation, nausea, loss of balance, coordination, muscle twitching, seizures, swelling, weight gain, shortness of breath, weak shallow breathing, mild nausea, vomiting, mild diarrhea. Streptomycin is another black box warning antibiotic. Possible adverse reactions to this one is black stools, burning, crawling, itching, numbingness of the 
of the skin, chest pain, chills, cough, dizziness, fever, nausea, sensation of spinning, shortness of breath, sore throat, swollen glands, unsteadiness, vomiting, bleeding gums, dark urine, fast heartbeat, headache, hives, itching, loss of appetite, muscle weakness, nose, nosebleeds. Guys, I, I'm, I'm skimming over this long list of side effects. What's also very interesting to take note of is these monkey kidney cells that were used actually many years ago, the 50s and 60s, and actually even into the 80s, these monkey kidney cells were contaminated with SV40. This is a virus in monkeys that was then actually contaminating humans and giving this virus into humans. This SV40 is actually linked to causing cancer in humans. At the end of the day, when using animal tissues, there's always that unknown factor of infections and disease. So here we are, still not all the way through the important things that we need to know about the vaccine. And I want you guys to remember the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. What are the risks of the shots and what are the side effects? Is this shot likely to work? And should the disease be contracted, how likely is it to be dangerous or fatal? What are the side effects of this vaccine? So I I read through a bunch of side effects of many of the ingredients in the vaccine. There actually is much fewer side effects reported to VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Effects Reporting System, than the oral polio vaccine, which is a huge reason why that oral polio vaccine has been removed. But I do think it's important to take note of that there are 5,000 serious recorded reactions to VAERS on this IPV. There is 1,500 fatal reactions that have been reported to VAERS. There's actually been 500 claims in court of trying to sue for getting claims on this vaccine and 73 fatal fatality claims from this vaccine. So yes, there is dangers of this vaccine. We've seen from the Cutter incident, we've seen from the inoculation of SV40 on accident that was infected in these monkey kidney cells. We've seen actual reports from theirs. And I also think it's super important to add that Harvard did a study on theirs, proving, showing that only 1% of the reactions are actually reported to theirs. So if you take that study, we're probably lowballing the reactions very severely. There's one more point that I want to bring up about this vaccine before we conclude this episode on our vaccine conversation. And that is that The injected vaccine does not stop the spread of polio. It does give you bloodstream immunity, and that bloodstream immunity is there so you don't have those neurological complications from the disease, but it doesn't give you that intestinal immunity. So going back to what we know about the disease, about 1%-ish of people get those nerve injuries, and that is through a lot of the blood, the bloodstream. So the polio vaccine, the IPV in in specific, it is meant to essentially protect you from the paralytic polio. That is such low percentages of getting. 
where somebody who wants to avoid, let's say the uncomfortable, maybe common cold feeling or being asymptomatic, let's just say you're not protected with this polio virus. Again, this gives you bloodstream immunity. So you don't have neurological complications from this disease. This does not give you full immunity. And it also does not stop the spread of polio. So with that, there is actually no public health protection for this vaccine. A lot of mothers or parents or families or teachers or doctors will say that just do it for the better of others. How many times have we heard that? Just do it to protect others. Well, not getting this polio vaccine is not doing any different than getting this polio vaccine because again, it does not stop the spread. It is essentially just protecting your bloodstream. It's just protecting you from neurological complications of polio. This vaccine does not protect the public health. It protects the individual. I think that's important to discuss. I think it's also important to discuss that because then if it affects the individual, what can the individual do to protect itself from polio, say with or without the vaccine? Because remember guys, this vaccine does not stop the spread. So whether or not you get the vaccine, you should still be doing the things we have learned it's through feces. So make sure you are washing your hands, especially when you use public bathrooms, ladies, especially, and men, if you are sitting on the toilet, that's gross. Put toilet paper down, do the squat. That's another good sanitation method. Wash your hands. Make sure you're drinking from clean water, which we are lucky to live in a, in a country where maybe it's not free from toxins, but it's free from feces in the water decently. Those refined sugars, those white carbs, that plays a huge role in, in your health and immune system. Take care of the person. Whether or not you do or don't get the polio vaccine, because again, you aren't protected. You aren't immune to polio if you get the vaccine. You still could get polio, although it's eradicated. But if people are still going to come at you and say, well, it's not eradicated, well, then you have some information in your toolbox. With all of this information, and I want to just, I guess, reiterate through as we go through the series that you are the only one that can make a decision for you. You are the gatekeeper of your home. Don't let me, don't let your doctor, don't let Dr. Fauci, don't let the mainstream media, don't let your teachers, don't let your schools force a decision on you or tell you what you should do. You are the only one who knows your life, who knows your circumstances, and who knows your future. You're the only one who knows how you want to take care of your kids, what you plan to do to protect them. So you need to make that decision, but I feel it's important that we're educated on things and I'm not going to go directly into the information on other viruses right now. I want to, I want to talk about other important subjects first, but I feel like I needed to talk about polio first because whenever people talk about vaccines, they instantly go to polio. And, and I hope after listening to this episode 
you maybe have an open mind to knowing that, okay, maybe the polio vaccine didn't save us all. Or maybe it did. I don't know. But I think we're allowed to ask questions. I think we're allowed to know that there is other research and stories. And a lot of this you're not going to be able to find. If you're wondering where you can learn more, I've got some recommendations. I will always link them in the show notes, but there's a couple books and there's a couple documentaries that I want you to watch. The first is the book called Dissolving Illusions. That's by Suzanne Humphreys. That's an incredible book. She talks a lot about polio. She talks a lot about essentially dissolving the illusions that you have of all of these diseases that we are taught to fear and actually sharing very, very interesting similarities between other things. For example, the similarities between DDT poisoning and polio. I also recommend the vaccine conversation. There is an incredible podcast called the vaccine conversation, and they actually have a website where they have amazing training videos. You can go to the the vaccineconversation.org. There's actually an entire book on the cutter incident. That's by Paul Offit. I'll put that in the show notes. And then I'll put all the other recommendations, links, articles. You guys know the drill. I don't just talk out of my ass. I don't just talk out of thin air. I have research. I have data. I have spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours researching this. And I'm finally compiling it into series for you guys to understand. So I really hope you guys learned a lot in this episode. If you are listening to this episode and you think I'm a crazy anti-vax conspiracy theorist nut job, that's okay, I guess. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And you're going to live your life the way you want to live it. And if you really, truly listen to these episodes with an open mind and an open heart, I really don't think that you would think that. But I think sometimes people are so close-minded is all they want to do is bash, 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 but then they don't even listen. That's the problem with what we're going through right now is people have already made up their minds before they even hear you out. They just wait for you to finish talking so they can spew out their nonsense. Again, I'm not here to tell you whether or not you should get the polio vaccine. Heck, I'm not here to tell you whether or not you should do anything. I'm here to tell you that you should be informed. You should be informed. You should be empowered to do so. And if you aren't feeling empowered to do so, or if you don't take the time and the energy to inform yourself, then you don't really have much room to talk and tell anyone else how they live their life. So thanks for tuning in, you guys. I can't wait to share with you guys episode three of our vaccine conversation. This was part two of I don't know how many parts. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in again, and I will see you next week.